0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a R film, criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Emma Westwood and a guest host has returned once more. Say it, Lisa <laughs> Kovarchevich.
1: Well, oh, so close! Ish. That was really Is close. Is it an issue? I- it's itch. Itch. no, itch. okay. Yeah, Lisa Kovarchevich. Yes, well
0: done. All right, <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs> Just ever the professional, right here. Um, <laughs> it's the three of us in the cave tonight. Yes, yeah, Cerese Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas will not be uh, be with us. So it's, yes. but I'm sure the three of us can sort ourselves out tonight. We're going to be revisiting the classic 1977 Steven Spielberg film. Close Encounters of the Third Kind Just in time for its 40th anniversary re-release screenings And we're also going to take a look at Detroit The new film by Catherine Bigelow About a notorious incident that occurred 50 years ago During the 1967 Detroit riot But first, Murder on the Orient Express is a new adaptation of Agatha Christie's classic 1934 murder mystery novel, where the Belgian detective Hercule Pirot, one of Christie's most famous and prolific characters, must try to solve a murder that takes place on the long-distance train trip between Istanbul and London, where everybody on board is a suspect. Murder on the Orient Express has been adapted for the screen a number of times before, most notably by Sidney Lumney uh, in his 1974 film where Albert Finney played Perrault. In this new version, Kenneth Branagh plays the iconic detective as well as directing the film and being one of the producers. The all-star cast playing the passengers under suspicion includes Penelope Cruz, William Defoe, Judy Dench, Johnny Depp, Derek Jacobi, Daisy Ridley... And Michelle Pfeiffer, to name (laughs) just a few.
2: Michelle, (laughs) my belle.
0: (laughs) So I was definitely going to go and see this.
2: (laughs) Regardless of anything. Yeah, you're a big Kenneth Branagh fan, aren't
0: you? (laughs) I I don't mind a bit of Kenneth Branagh.
2: Sure. It was a mustache.
0: Loved him in Fabulous Baker Boys on top of that grand piano.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, look, how are we with Agatha? This is something of kind of a revival of a genre that's kind of gone away a bit, the the, the, the sort of cosy murder mystery. It's sort of a nice murder mystery. That's what Agatha Christie excelled at. And I, I think this is the first time I've seen a single film adapted from or even television show for that matter, adapted from any of her source material. I've never encountered really? Ag- Ag- Agatha Christie until now. So, not Death on
1: the Nile or nope. anything like that. Oh, so you never saw the original of this? No, right. I've, had,
0: I actually, I've actually got a copy at home, which I'm probably going to watch tonight because I am very curious to yeah, see that yeah. the '70s version. But um, this was, yeah, my first encounter yeah. with an Agatha Christie.
1: And no Miss Marple in the '90s. Or
0: I was aware of it. I, nope. I caught you know ads with Angela Lansbury on them, but it, <laughs> it, it, it never yeah. really appealed to me. So
2: I think. That, Despite um,
0: loving crime fiction, this type of crime fiction has never really appealed to me.
2: Mm. Oh, that's you, you can't have an English background, then Thomas, surely not. No, it's,
0: it's only a quarter, and it goes back many generations. Oh, okay, it's
2: been it's been um, <laughs> diluted, let's yeah, there say, you go. because um, <laughs> this is just what uh, English television is completely full of. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. though it's not necessarily Agatha Christie, it's Agatha Actually, It hasn't Agatha gone away. has It, 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 it has. It English hasn't.
0: television does this kind of thing continuously. Yes.
2: You even look at something like. Like Death in Paradise, and that has you know remarkably everyone gets together in the one location at the end, and it's like no, it's that man with the, the, mm. the paddle stick, the candlestick, whatever yep, yep, you know, so. the paddle stick. <laughs> the paddle stick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a Caribbean island. Yeah. I don't know, <laughs> but um, yeah, this is something that is just an English favourite. It's 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 huge, and I'm so sure
0: you were familiar with the source material, or
2: yeah, I've read a lot of Agatha Christie's as a kid, but kind of um they're very weak in my memory Mm. although I feel like it's part of my DNA just that I know them Mm. so well I know what it's about so well and Murder on the Orient Express I had seen the original but I hadn't seen it for ages and like you Thomas I was intrigued I watched it again because I felt that I needed to see that as a comparison point to this film um this film had two things that really appealed to me straight away that were just going to get me, which is trains, films on trains. I love films on trains. <laughs> and
0: no, art, I hear you. Yep. Yeah,
2: and Art Deco, you know, and the, and the production design is absolutely beautiful and it is a, a shot on film and it's shot in a large format film.
0: 65mm and it being is. screened at 70 in I think at least one location in Melbourne.
2: Yeah, yeah. and I think it's worthwhile seeing in 70mm if anyone c- can because I remember actually watching back in you <laughs> Oh, showing my age now 1996 um Branagh's Hamlet in yep. s- mm. a screened in 70 mil and it was gobsmackingly smackingly gorgeous like just absolutely beautiful and it has stayed with me so I'm sure that this film um would have the same impact because it is so sumptuous and gorgeous in a way that um the original well the original film it's hard to say oh there have been so many television adaptations and so mm. forth as well
0: the other adaptations the have been Lynette made for tv the, so that yeah yeah
2: the Sydney Lumet film is um, not as beautiful not as over the top not as heavily production design it's a much more demure film mm. but once again it's a film that uh, has this you know incredible ensemble cast and for some reason I always feel even watching the two it felt like the casts were not Whether I, well, yeah, I will say it, not utilised in the way they could be. It's an incredible ensemble, yet you never, I don't think they really ever really pop and wow you. And I think that, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I think it's the Agatha Christie source material. I don't think it's that great a mystery.
1: It's, it might be. I, I agree with you. You couldn't. Mm. You didn't really get the emotional depth of any of the characters. It all felt very superficial. Um, and I but I also felt that it was. To me, it was a Kenneth Branagh vanity piece. Like it was so oh. much about him.
2: Um, but isn't every Kenneth like, Branagh film? A <laughs> Kenneth <laughs> Branagh. Um, He's
1: consistent.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's true. He is. He, he doesn't star in all of them. Um, which, all, all the films he directs, he doesn't necessarily oh, no, star but in. But yeah, but you're he, right. But when when, when he stars, them, yeah,
2: when he's in them, and it's all about that mustache. Is ah, oh, it was the bigger bigger than, yeah, <laughs> it was the Poirot mustache to
1: end all Poirot mustaches. And actually, I mm-hmm. found the film incredibly boring and dull. I, I saw the I saw the original. And I couldn't remember what the outcome was of the Who Done It. And watching this, I just quite frankly couldn't care less. Um, so I did entertain myself with that mustache. I just sort of sat there, which I which was quite entertaining, just pondering if it was real, who designed it, because it was this like double-decker, it was. extraordinary, extraordinarily manicured thing. And I it just... was the Sarah Lee moustache, <laughs> layer upon of, layer. It's
0: layered. It's like the Rachel <laughs> <in> moustaches. <laughs> yes.
1: yeah. It was, yeah, it was. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I just sort of felt like he was like, well, how can I out Poirot all the other Peter Euston of iterations? And this was how he was going to do it. I, um, yeah, but I just found it all a bit boring and a bit pedestrian. It did look beautiful. Um, and I thought that visually it shone for me when it went to the black and white, um, flashbacks. And I thought it looked more stylistic then than it did. The rest of it felt pedestrian to me in terms of the cinematography and stuff, even though it was beautiful and you could tell a shitload of money had been thrown at this thing. Um, but I just didn't, I, I just couldn't. Get, I found it a bit of a snore fest, to be honest. I was just couldn't wait for it to be over. I just <laughs> didn't enjoy it.
0: I think I'm somewhere in between you two, but I'm going to agree with Emma that I think the fundamental problem with this film is the source material. I have actually... I did actually read this novel before I saw saw the film and, again, you know, mm. first time I'd read an Ag- Agatha Christie novel and it, it's very sort of, uh, you know, it, it's just economical. It gets the job done. It's like there, mm. there, there is no, there is nothing particularly exciting about about the language. It's all very, you know, each chapter is a different interrogation. It's really plot point to plot point to plot point at the end mm. and and I think that you, there's very little you can do to overcome the very basic nature of the source material. Mm. Enormous respect for its influence and, and the craft behind writing it in the way that it's written for its intended audience. So I'm not going to disack the Christie, <Yeah>. but... Um, <laughs> who are we? I mean, but I think by, by today's standards, it's, quite, it's, it's basic yeah. stuff now. Mm-hmm. It and is, and
1: it begs the question, why remake it? Why on earth would you remake it? And it doesn't bring anything new to it. I'm just like, oh. well, I think...
0: I agree with the first part of what you said, why bother? But I think he tries to bring a lot of new stuff to it. And some of that work for me, some of it doesn't. Like, it's it's really embellished. Um, certainly, there is no sense of the visual grandeur in, in the novel. So that's sort of been added in. Um, the camera in this... Um, I, I know what you mean about but the sort of banal look of it, but at the same time, Brenner does this thing where he tries to overcompensate with his camera, so there's loads of really weird angles that really scream out, look what I'm doing here, it's a weird angle. And this is something he copped a lot of flack for when he made his Thor film, right. which was that, mm. but the entire thing was canted. And I liked some of it to a degree, but then it becomes very repetitive and noticeable and it, it feels like he's overcompensating and I think that's because there's only so much you can do with a camera inside a train. train.
1: There were a lot of aerial shots I I noticed, you know, yep. with
2: conversations and stuff, and I thought that that was interesting. Actually, yeah.
0: First time I saw that was great.
2: Yeah, but, but I like that with the the crime scene where he did the, the sort of direct overhead on the crime scene because yes. it had that it, it felt right in that way. It almost it felt did. a bit noir in that it way. It did.
1: Yeah. yeah. I guess though, I think my issue is not so much the cinematography and stuff, which I agree is beautiful. It's the story, and maybe it comes yeah. back to the source material stuff. But I'm like, what is what is relevant to an audience today? It's just nostalgic, and there's nothing. New happening.
0: I well, I mean, he does things like in this film. There's a lot more action, which feels radically out of place. Like, mm. like there's a scene with a chase under a train bridge. And there's a gun. There's a bit of gunplay, and it it really. Feels very much added on because it is. It doesn't yeah. fit seamlessly in the tone that's and style. of trying the Trying to
2: create a more contemporary yeah. cinematic piece out of it. I, d-
1: I did find it interesting mm. that he used his cane as a weapon. I don't know that that's
2: been used before in um, that is Poirot. not in the original yeah. film. Just yeah. so you know, that <laughs> en- entire opening scene. Yeah, is that not, was quite clever. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. that that was very much setting up. Um, this was a vanity piece around Poirot, very much so, and with Brenner, Brenner playing that character, and he was far more. Announced in this, then when Thomas, you have a look at the Lumet film, mm. you'll see Albert Finney's. While he's a total caricature in his presentation of the character, it's not so much about Hercule as it is when Brann's playing it.
0: Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah, well I mean the, the character that the novel doesn't really shine through either. It's, it's just it's just a type. He 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 is he's a vessel to, to drive this story. What I did like about this film is when we finally got to the big confrontation about who did the murder, and even though it's sort of a fairly wide fairly widely known I think how this resolves and it's fairly infamous, we won't spoil it now but i f- i was actually surprised surprised at how suddenly emotionally connected i felt to that there's a real tragic story behind this you know we, we call I, you know i called this at the start of one of these cozy detective stories but there's a crime within a crime in this story hmm. that's really appalling and tragic and and i think the film really nicely actually gave you a sense of how heartbreaking that that is mm-hmm. um even though it's also very much a technique so you don't care too much about the fact this person's got murdered. You're interested in the mystery but the the, the film and the novel very much established that you, you're totally fine with this person getting killed. Yes. Mm. And that's an interesting point I wouldn't mind discussing which is the kind of idea in this film, I mean, sure it's a fantasy but it very much pushes the idea that law and order doesn't catch the bad guys and therefore taking the law into your own hands yes. is perfectly fine. Yes, mm.
1: there was this moral ambiguity at the end yep. which really shocked me because he's so, he has. A, take such a hor- high moral a moral high ground rather yep. throughout the film. And then at the end, he's like, I'm just going to throw that out the window, actually, at the end. And I, I found that was strange.
0: And it's linked to this idea of, of him becoming a more human character. Like, right. he's very much established, isn't he, as this kind of cut and dried, mm. you know, everything has to be immaculate. OCD. Yeah, yeah, b- mm. bordering on some kind of disorder, possibly. Mm. And it's sort of the idea that he's a bit more... <laughs> Mm. him getting a bit of humanity towards the end of the film kind of involves him being okay with murder. Yes, Mm. yes. it is a fantasy, and you know the revenge narrative is all about this. But and it always troubles me when it's sort of put seamlessly into popular culture as this is how things are. Yeah,
1: yeah, I agree with you. But I found that that last scene that you're talking about, I was emotionally invested there too. But I think to Brenner's credit, it was his performance. I thought the performance was really spectacular. But I didn't. I, I, that horrific crime that you're talking about that was un, that was underpins this story. I found it that they they were drawing a long bow. I just didn't believe it. I just didn't believe... Can I say that there's some connections with people on this train to this... Yeah, I you think know, that's I think okay. that signposted early on. Yes, that, that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah.
0: It's not an accident that these people are on or the train. All are all yeah, together, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, I just sort of, I just found it so unbelievable. And again, that's the source material, isn't it? Mm. You know, I just was like, this wasn't going with it. I found it really hard to suspend disbelief, I think, with this film,
2: you know. I've, I've tried to uh, actually connect all the films we're doing to, uh, tonight, but unfortunately I can only connect two of them, which is, um, in this, in Murder on the Orient Express, we have Lucy Boynton from one of Thomas and My Favourite films of last year, which was Sing oh, Street. Sing, yeah, So she was the model of the riddle of the model. Yep. Um, in Detroit, we also have the brother who played um, uh, what's uh, Jack Renner. Jack Renner, yeah. Yeah, he's in, he, and he's, he's in Detroit. Detroit and yeah. he was the brother, excellent, in Sing Street. Yep. So this is actually a Sing Street episode of Plato's <laughs> Cave, With alien invasion in the middle.
0: in the history of tenuous connections, ever you've <laughs> outdone yourself. So what are we saying about Murder on the Express? It's it's a curiosity that maybe is worth seeing. I, I, I certainly enjoyed the experience of sitting there and having the film unravel film. in front of me. But yeah, yeah I, at the same time, I also felt like I could have used this time better.
1: Yeah, I did too. Yeah. It's funny because I'm very familiar with the genre and as a kid, I was obsessed with murder mysteries. When I ran out of Hitchcock's at a, at a stupidly young age, I started looking for other things and I actually started watching Miss Marples and stuff out of desperation because I needed more content and there just was, wasn't enough for me and and like you said it's always been very safe nana kind of <laughs> murder mysteries and stuff but, um, but this one I just maybe I'd seen too many I just found it really dull and it got me thinking about remakes and stuff again and why the hell they make so many of them and I checked out the top ten grossing films of the year and nine of them are remakes yeah, or sequels and, and I find that really depressing just please make something new and I know that the argument is oh but audiences want it but I I think audiences just want cinema the same way I wanted those murder mysteries as a kid we just want content we just want to see new stories and we'll go we'll go with Penelope Cruz and Kenneth Branagh and million Johnny Depp in the film you know so just make something new please and I implore you don't go and see this film because they're going to make another sequel they alluded to it at the end oh. I really don't want to see it alluded to a
0: polite way of saying it blatantly announced what the next film will be yeah. right. <laughs> we've been talking about the the new film adaptation of murder on the the Orient Express, you're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas, Emma and Lisa
2: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia
0: Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the film we are about to discuss now I'm slightly excited <laughs> There's a smile on his face. Steven Spielberg's 1977 alien encounter film Close Encounters of the Third Kind has recently been remastered and re-released to coincide with its 40th anniversary. It will screen in Melbourne this Friday at the Astor Theatre in Cinema Nova. Written and directed by Spielberg, it was very much a labour of love for the now iconic director, who at the time was still at the beginning of his career, although the year before he had made Jaws, which was the first of his many game-changing films that saw him transition the new Hollywood era of the late 60s and 70s into the blockbuster era of the 1980s. Close Encounters of the Third Kind tells the story of the build-up to a peaceful alien encounter in parallel stories. One where Richard Dreyfuss and Melinda Dillon play two regular people who develop obsessions after seeing strange objects in the sky. And one where the French New Wave director Francois Truffaut (laughs) and, and a very young Bob Balaban play members of a scientific mission studying reports of unusual activities from around the world. It all eventually comes together in an extraordinary finale. Cinematographer Vilmos Zsigmond, editor Michael Kahn, composer John Williams, visual effects supervisor Douglas Trumbull and creature designer Carlo Rambaldi are just some of the key crew members who contributed to making this classic American science fiction film. I
2: Do you um, want to start? Just. Thomas? just You're going to love this film.
0: This is <laughs> You know how everyone has those films that you've lost count of the number of times you've seen them f- for whatever reason? This is one of those ones for me. I remember catching bits of it on TV when my parents were watching, it. and I think I had seen E.T., which, of course, was even bigger for Spielberg and... Mm-hmm. Um, and they sort of tentatively let me watch this one because this is sort of like the, the adult telling of the E.T. Mm, story, I, I suppose. Agree. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this one is aimed at adults where E.T. Yes. E. is a family film. And ever since then I've been obsessed with it and I've seen it so many times over the years. I've bought it on VHS DVD <laughs> and now Blu-ray. I've bought, <laughs> now
2: there's a 4K restaurant. And now there's a 4K. Have <laughs> I'll
0: have to upgrade. I've seen it in the cinema. I've got the soundtrack. <laughs> And it's a film that never fails to absolutely blow my mind. I just think it's one of the most beautiful um, meeting of so much uh, creative on-screen talent. Um, mm. and, and it just comes together in this sort of 40-minute finale spectacle, which is the most incredible crescendo to just pure feel-good filmmaking. You know, this is one of those films that, for me, it's a, it's a real remedy when I'm getting cynical or when I'm worried I'm over-analytical and I'm pulling films together it's just the craft in this film has this emotional engagement like very few other films has with me it just it chokes me up watching it i'm getting choked up talking about it my affection for this film is so strong <laughs> and i watched it again over the weekend it just holds up. It is, I can't believe this is a 40-year-old film.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, I like what you said about cynicism because I, I can actually be quite cynical about Spielberg films and, and this just d- d- disintegrated them. I, if you hadn't told me it was a Spielberg film, because I hadn't seen it before, um, it was slightly before my time, but for some reason I'd missed it. Um, however, that iconic five-tone thing that's played throughout was so familiar to me, thus was its power. It must have been mm. penetrated pop culture so heavily Oh yeah, it's one of those films that yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, but but watching this film, it felt like an auto, auteur film, and I would never say that about Spielberg personally. But I thought it was beautiful, and I have a horrific admission to make, and that is that I missed the last forty minutes. <laughs> forty minutes, <laughs> That Christian, I can't wait to see it though. But I was, um, I had a really busy week. Sorry, peeps, but I was. Um... <laughs> to, to be fair,
0: Lisa, you're at the, the, the what was the name of the conference? It's the
1: CBWA conference. It's the Community Broadcasting Association of On Australia. On behalf of Triple R, yeah. I was working. I was working yeah. hard, and I was trying really hard to. It's all I wanted to do was watch this film, but unfortunately, I didn't get through it. I kept anyway. It was, it was bad. It was bad timing, but I really enjoyed what I saw of it. And it's a it's a it's a big crescendo. You know, it's mm. quite a long film. Um, what I really liked about it was the c- the no the lack of CGI. I, I love like those old school film techniques that they use, and I sort of did a bit of research, and they use everything from matte painting, animated sequences, UFO miniatures, um, rotating. Turns table 70 mil lenses it goes on and it's just i really like i like those the films of that era where you can see the human touch you know it doesn't mm. i I feel cg i just it looks good for a year or two and then it dates it does get, it's getting better all the time obviously i admit but um and less
0: noticeable and too. less yeah. noticeable
1: absolutely mm. but um but for the most part i love um i love special effects of the 70s and 80s because they're so organic and and i can i can be transported with them you know i think um they the feel real because they are, are real. real absolutely that's exactly what it is. The same with Jim Henson puppetry and stuff. Not Non-CGI CGI characters um, have something more human about them because there's a human behind the puppet, mm. you know.
0: Well, it's that thing where it's not pretending to be real. Yeah. So when you look at, say, old Disney or Warner Brothers cartoons or when you look at the Muppets, it, it's a whole Uncanny Valley thing that there's, that there's a big gulf between fantasy characters and then realistic characters. In between, it's just this kind of very awkward, uncomfortable trying to look realistic. But, yes. But that is slightly mm. different to this. This is just, here yeah, this old-school digital, uh, old-school special effects. And I mentioned that Douglas Trumbull was the mastermind behind a lot of the look of this film. Yeah, you know, His other credits included things like 2001 One, a Space yes, Odyssey. I, you
2: could tell. And
0: Blade Runner. Yeah. I mean, he was the master.
2: And then he, yeah. and then he went on to be the guy to, doing the effects at Universal Studios theme park.
1: Wow. And I
2: can remember going... Going there and actually being really excited by that, that. Yeah. yeah. And he didn't let me down, I must say. <laughs> yeah,
1: uh, but, but but even special effects aside, because I didn't see like I said the last forty minutes, yeah. which is where I think it's that oh, must really yes. come through. <laughs> we'll um, but I but where yeah. I felt it actually worked best was when it was really minimal. It was like the lighting, or that that rolling thunderstorm coming in was incredible. Um, just the suggestion of something yeah. was was really effective. I love. There's a scene um, on a on an empty highway with Richard Drake in his pickup truck oh, yes, and yes, yes, yes. that was fabulous <laughs> um uh, you know there's a, a an alien spacecraft of some description comes up in the rear vision um, but and that was scary enough but but what really did it for me was after he goes through this experience there's something ahead of him on the road just some lights come down and sort of disappear mm. and it's super lynchy and it's almost it's so abstract that it was so creepy I loved it and I, I yeah. thought um, it was really affecting
2: yeah, yeah I really enjoyed yeah, it yeah I think um, um, gee, I don't know where to start with this, but um, like you guys, just slot in there, say. Um I didn't see it at the time and I actually only saw it a, um a bit later because um the ET was the one that hit me at the time because I was actually the age of Elliot the lead oh. character when when the film came <laughs> oh, out wow. so it was like yep. that film was made for me in yep. the way that Spielberg has this amazing ability to do for children and I think for a lot of people actually I know Spielberg does get a lot of shit hung on him yeah. but when he really hits his mark he's he's a genius yep. he's actually a genius and this and we were just talking before off air about um, John Williams getting copping a lot of flack and people John Williams score but you know these two together they're masterminds Mm. you know that I think we can all be cynical because there's been so much John Williams so much Steven Spielberg but um, Close Encounters is an example of where it comes together and really magic is created and this film is also um, a film you can argue all films are films of light and Sound, but this film in particular is about using light and sound in a way that's so pronounced. Yeah. There was kind of a, it was like passing the baton to E.T. You know, in E.T., the start is all those flashlights Mm. going around. In the woods or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, Chasing E.T. through Mm. the woods. And that is. It's very
0: much thematically and. uh, Oh, it follows on. You know. It's
2: it's, a domestic. E.T. is a domestic kids' version. It's really the family film.
0: It's almost like the, yeah, it's almost like E.T.'s sort of unofficial sequel to Close Encounters. Well, well,
2: Close Encounters really plays for adults more than children. Mm -hmm. I don't think children. Would really understand the film in that way. It's also been
0: I mean, close encounters is a film about broken families as well. I mean, we yeah. see a family disintegrate as this man becomes obsessed. I mean, yeah. th- there is real tragedy in this film, and I, I forget the range of emotions you go through. There is real tragedy, and there is a sequence in this film where a little boy gets taken by the aliens, and it's, yeah. it, it plays like a horror film. It does. Like it's, it's really yeah. upsetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. and um, so that all that all that pronounced light. I mean, you know, in, with the aliens coming down, it's just you know quite incredible, and that. The those booming sounds, Um, sound design is just amazing. Vilma um, Sigmund, who's shot it, is just, he died on the 1st of January 2016 because I shed a tear when he died. I'm (laughs) a big fan. Um, But it it also shows this beautiful lineage, like you go back to the 50s with the Robert Wise film, The the Day the Earth Stood Still, Mm -hmm. and it plays on that idea of thematic Communication. So yep. that Klaatu to barato that was in the day the earth stood still, and we have the do 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 mm. in this, mm. and that plays out visually as well as as a sound.
0: And the day the earth stood still was a rare 1950s film where the alien encounter was a positive one.
2: Yes. Yeah. Very very rare because we mm. were in that post nuclear paranoia yep. or the nuclear par- or in the nuclear paranoia, and then we I think it comes right out with you know our beautiful film last year yep. Arrival, <laughs> yeah. which is all about that idea of communication and taking a whole other... Um, way of infiltrating the the idea of communication with alien life and how you bridge everything comes down to communication that's how we you know we make friends that's how we we um, we find peace basically
0: the film starts with dialogue about what's he saying i don't understand him do we have a translator yeah. like the mm. film the film starts in an, in another country where the americans are trying to get a translator to, to understand what the locals are trying to tell them and i think that's probably the enduring power of this film is the amazing sense of hope and humanity that we can make Maybe work together. Mm. It's not just an American mission, it's an international mission you have, you know, this French scientist. Mm. True.
2: True Fo is crazy. That was amazing. I know.
0: And he's he's lovely.
1: Yeah. He's (laughs) such a great character and he's a really
0: charming actor. I Um, loved his
1: performance actually. I thought he was great. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: strong. And And you also see in this film what goes in overdrive, what's become known as the Spielberg gaze, this very iconic Spielberg moment in pretty much all his films where somebody will look just off camera, eyes and mouth open in wonder at something <laughs> yeah. amazing. There's a really great video usually essay. The,
2: usually the hair kind of flows a, you know <laughs> flutters a bit backwards j- with just something.
0: just this look of awe I mean it's Spielberg yeah. understanding that us looking at somebody looking at something amazing has this power mm. and the first time i mean you know when we first meet Barry the little boy we just get shots of his face
2: yeah
0: uh, as as he sees as he's delighted by what he's seeing and it's it's just his power of looking and um, yeah. it's, it's the film doesn't over explain what's going on there's <gasps> actually still a lot of, a lot of mystery it's, as it's, yeah. I think
2: this really defines it from a lot of other Spielberg's films it is a is heard mansplainer as a as a term he's a hollywood splainer mm. you know he has to you know the, the end of schindler's list was a perfect example that oh, with this one ring i could have saved we get it we've watched the whole <laughs> film we don't need this yeah. and this film really holds back we don't understand how they've worked out this this tone this way of communicating we're not brought into the minutiae of it no. we're just brought into the minutiae of um uh, a household one household that's falling to bits, and that's the the only thing we're given. So I think it's tonally a little different to most of Spielberg's work. It's
1: funny, though, because that was the only thing I found difficult with the film was emotional connection to the characters, because I felt, and I think it's to do with... You haven't
2: watched the last one. Oh, well, that's minutes. right. It'll yeah, I haven't lo- I haven't watched, watched the
1: last <laughs> few minutes. But I also think that it's to do with when I'm watching this. I think had I watched this as a kid in the 80s when I watched E.T., and when I watched Jaws when I shouldn't have, I watched it at a party one night under a table, and I was like... <laughs> like so transfixed by this film. I was obsessed with it. I just kept asking yeah. to watch the shark movie. But if I watch that movie now, it doesn't have the same impact that it did Jaws, Jaws as a, as a child. It does to or me. Does it? Oh, yeah. It does to oh, yeah. me. Yeah. See, it doesn't yeah. for me. And yeah. I wonder if, you know, I had to watch this in the era or closer to the era it was created. I probably would have got a lot more from it. But I did struggle with emotional connection to character, particularly Richard Dreyfuss. I felt that there was a distance. And I think, and I was thinking about it, a lot of it's to do with the way it was shot. I know there were close-ups of the young boy and stuff and um, and some of those um, archaeologists or scientists at the, f- at the start in, in, in awe at seeing ships in the desert and, and such, mm-hmm. which I loved. Um, but with Richard Dreyfuss as well, I felt that there was always this sort of distance because a lot of that family dynamic was happening in four shots. So there would be like three or four characters in the mm-hmm. frame. And I'm used to seeing these close-ups. I think it's just to, to do with how I've, I'm being trained to view things, you know. So I mm-hmm. wanted to be close on the face to see the emotion. And, and there was this strange... Distance I felt in a lot of those um, dr- dramatic, you mm-hmm. know, domestic scenes.
0: I think that framing is deliberate and quite clever. And it you, must and, be, and you'll discover when you um, when you get to see the end of the film is you get the camera gets closer to Dreyfus's face. I think as the film goes because the family falls apart. Right. So we see him in frame with the rest of his family, and then they gradually get excluded as he just starts to go down this path of obsession that he has to go down. It's alone. It's almost
1: like a religious mm. obsession, isn't it, for him? There's
0: been religious yeah. readings of this film. Yeah, to, right. Yeah. Sort of saying yes. the alien is some yeah. kind of spiritual uh, mm. encounter. Mm. encounter. Yeah, it works as a yeah. reading. It's not one I take personally.
2: But, um. <laughs> and Terry Garr just, you know, she's amazing in that role, you know. Rather than playing a token, a token wife, she uh, actually creates an entire character with that. <laughs> and they and chose injects to make, a make a her humour.
0: And she's a sympathetic character. Yeah, it would she have been is. really easy to make her dislikable. Mm. Um mm. But, but we feel her tragedy. You do. And, and yeah. She's even, losing her husband. Yeah, and um, even yeah.
2: through the, the, the tragedy though, there's a lot of humour played out. As well through the children as and the, and the children you know Spielberg started he showed families for what they were I know that now that's a thing we all see that in cinema we see the dysfunctional family thank you the Simpsons but um, this was way back in 1977 it was really this sense of what a our, our, our suburban household in 1977 yeah, and women. a working
0: class household yeah, mm, yeah. I mean Spielberg was it, certainly for mainstream cinema not a lot of people are showing families the way he did mm. which were that they were poor they. They often were missing a parent, and and you know they they often were yelling at each other, and there was just <laughs> chaos. general chaos. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think you, you you do really see that new Hollywood influence in these early Spielberg films before he mm. became you know king of the blockbuster f- f- for better or for worse. Mm. But you know, yeah, this and Jaws and E. T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, I don't care what Spielberg does or has done since
2: that's not a fluke. He gave to us that book. Yeah, films. exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: And he gave me this film that just. <laughs> puts me into some happy dreamland every time. And it, you, you know there's a very fun reference to Jaws in this film, which in a bit you haven't got to yet, Lisa. Right. I can't
2: remember. Basically when the humans it?
0: and the ship start start to communicate each other with, with music, the, yeah. the, the ship plays the Jaws theme very uh, briefly. Uh, yeah, it's okay. quite cute. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: For the fans. It's there for the fans, (laughs) eh?
0: Always kidding around. We've been talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind here on Plato's Cave. Three Triple R. Detroit is the new film by Catherine Bigelow, and it continues the sort of cinema verite aesthetic that she's pursued in her previous films, The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Released to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the events that re enacts. Detroit is about an incident that occurred during the four-day race riot that occurred in the American city of Detroit in 1967, which is sometimes referred to as the 12th Street Riot. After showing how the riot began, the film follows a number of characters as they converge on the Algiers motel. In particular, we follow the story of the lead singer of R&B group The Dramatics and his best friend, who found themselves at the motel, which became the of an extreme act of police brutality and a gross miscarriage of justice. The cast includes John uh, Boyega as a security guard who gets caught up in the violence and Will uh, Poulter as one of the offending cops.
2: Mm. And, and Hannah Murray from Game of Thrones. I, I sat there through the whole movie, thinking, "Why do I know this girl? Where do I know this this person from?" And that and my bladder were calling me to leave the <laughs> cinema. And it was, I, and then at the end, I got on IMDb, and I'm like, "Of course, Game of Thrones." <laughs> she that's looks after, quite different in this. That's she? after I went to the toilet. Game of Thrones <laughs> is a
0: huge gap in my cultural knowledge. Uh, so if it's somebody okay. famous and I don't know who it is, uh, I assume right. it's Game of Thrones. It's Game of Thrones, Thrones I've never yeah, 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 but, but uh, it's so. slightly different to what the Detroit is. I'm guessing. Um, it's
2: just slightly. Yes, yeah, just slightly. <laughs> How do we? Slightly different to see. I'm I'm an old school Catherine Bigelow fan. Yeah, so, me too. So when I got to um, Hurt Locker. I felt quite disappointed. I didn't like it very much. And I didn't like the overt shaky cam and the Mm. digitization of it. Very digital, very Ridley Scott digital, Mm. the new Ridley Scott. Um, I think we can blame him for that through Gladiator. That's where that kind of motion came through, the really digital Mm, motion.
0: Michael Mann committed his share of digital sins. Was
2: he before that? In the early days of digital too. I I can't remember. Yeah, all right. We'll blame them both. Um, (laughs) We won't blame Catherine. She's wonderful. But but anyway, this, that that Hurt Locker, all its accolades and so forth, I couldn't really go into Zero Dark Thirty. I skipped it because of that. I've seen this film because we needed to. And I was, um, when I say pleasantly surprised, I came out absolutely surprised th- exhausted after watching this film I found it to be a totally harrowing experience but I love the way it was still a little too much shaky cam and I think that that's um now just an she's hit pay dirt with it and basically yeah. she's expected to do it now and and I and I don't blame her and she's become sort of a social justice director as well which wasn't necessarily her her starting point but um, I I do think that this film because it then corals around that one event and that the drama and the tension that's built up through that that Algiers motel event is just so taut and so it paced so incredibly well that um, I was won over and I enjoyed the progression of the story too from the the painting, the the, um, establishment stuff around illustrations and paintings, which Catherine Bigelow is a really good artist herself, so I wouldn't be surprised if she did them. I don't know whether she did or not. No,
1: it's a famous uh, um, painter, but I forget who, um, to do with the migration of the the slaves, basically. So you're talking about the animation
0: that starts the film, showing us the 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 history of the Mm, African-American experience in America and what led to this
2: Exactly. And and I like the way that it did go. I felt that it was going, when it started in its shaky cam doco style, I felt that I was going to have more of a fragmented experience through two and a half hours and I was a little bit worried about that. So it was kind of a relief to have this relief, so not the word to say with this film, but to have that event to hinge it on and to work around and actually establish the characters. Because she's a really good action director and she's she's very talented. She could go any way in storytelling. And she can tell different stories, stories very yeah. well. I okay. felt that, that there wasn't enough to um, to ground this
1: story in a socio political context at all. I thought we start, we enter into that um, a raid on a like an after hours um, drinking yeah. party. That, an, uh,
0: yeah, an illegal black nightclub for yes. returned servicemen. Yeah. Yes, and, and there's and, a raid on that. Yeah, yeah and she's very
1: yeah. quick to establish empathy and sympathy for these um, black servicemen, these Vietnam vets who have returned to a country that treats them like shit, basically. Yep. Um, and, and that's fine. Um, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't really give you any context for the riots. It doesn't really explore. I mean, in 1967, a black person couldn't have a liquor licence. So there was a reason that they were having this party that white people could experience. And I thought, well, I just felt like it needed more context. And I felt like for a film about black people, there wasn't a lot of black voices. There were no, where were the, the female black voices? Um, I felt mm-hmm. like the I, the emotional, I, I had very limited emotional Connection to um, the the main black boys, young boys, um, because the only backstory we got was hinged around Motown, which I find a very white way of looking at.
2: Um, oh, but that
1: was the point,
2: though. Remember, that came people. out
1: in the store? Yeah, sure. I just, it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for me. It didn't carry, I don't know. what. There maybe I,
2: I kind of see
0: what you're saying, actually, Lisa, when mm. I, I was troubled at first by the lack of context, because yeah. it did seem like a lot of black people writing against the police. And I, I was really feeling uncomfortable with the depiction of that at first first because it it felt like are we going to get some context as to why they're acting this way because without that historical knowledge which I didn't really have
1: I don't either, I had to read after
0: Likewise, (laughs) it it, it didn't feel good, No, it's not until you get this extreme act of brutality that you realise okay she's making a broader comment but I worry that she's using these events as a backdrop to do edgy cinema rather than have something political weight of value. I uh, yeah. was troubled a little bit, not mm. as much as I was with Zero Dark Thirty. That was a film that very much I enjoyed superficially, but I, I, I don't want to bang on about too much. But that film basically suggests that the use of torture was effective and worked, which goes okay. against all all evidence. Otherwise, I found that a really deeply troubling film. But she um, didn't.
2: She, she didn't no. write this. Yeah. Mar- she.
1: she he wrote, he wrote Zero Dark Thirty. Is that his He
2: name? did. He wrote yeah. Zero Dark Thirty and Hurt The Herd Locker. Hurt Locker. Yeah. Um, so I was just thinking, did he write i um, sorry, I was looking. Yeah, at... but, but, but no, that wasn't. I, I
0: no. find like so many of her recent films, I'm really in the moment. I'm really engaged. They're yeah, they're kind yeah. of thrilling on one level, but there's a there's something about it that troubles me. And I think it's it's using this drama as a playground for
1: spectacle. Spectacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's how I felt. I felt that there's so much violence in the middle of this film that happens in the hotel Algiers. Yeah, and it's
0: long. It's, it's a so really long. It's twelve sequence. years
1: a slave. Brutal. You know. It's, yeah. uh And I, but with twelve years a, a slave, there was something cathartic about that. Whereas with this, it felt like spectacle to me, and I felt really uncomfortable in it because it went on for far too long and didn't do much service to the story of Detroit. It should have been called Hotel LG, is not Detroit, because I didn't feel where was Detroit in this film. I didn't, I didn't get a good sense of the of place. Um, yeah, I just I found it a bit troubling, but I I like like it is amazing that handheld stuff out on the streets because you know what? It didn't feel like it didn't feel nostalgic. It felt like present, which I liked. I, I thought that that was quite well well achieved. Like I mm-hmm. felt like I was in it. Um, but I just think it really did a disservice to the story and to the socio-political context that was happening at the time, and and it just felt it just felt a bit white to me. I don't know, but I, I I'm not a black person, so I can't. I don't know. I just I just I was disappointed. I was disappointed. It, it'd be yeah.
2: interesting to know how it was. I, I I haven't looked this up how it was received in the U.S. because yeah. I think there is um, maybe a lot of assumption made there um, by the filmmakers, um, Catherine Bigelow and her writer. Like it's interesting. that... That this writer has been with her for the Hurt Locker and mm. Zero Dark Thirty because they're very. This is very much her latter career, and it's a, a real change from what we've seen beforehand. Um, to see that if there was you know, people could fit into it knowing exactly what was there. I mean, it was contextualised like we said with the illustrations, but, Mm. yeah, why was that fuse um, just so ready to be lit at that time? That's right. And the other
1: thing that I had a really big issue with was that the the problem that they're battling is society at large, but they pin it on one evil cop or two, three evil cops. So you can sort of, it's almost justifying it by saying it's not all of us white dudes, it's just these three bad ones these three bad eggs, you know, and I thought that that was outrageous actually and that that white character got so much sort of uh, screen time and, and a little bit of backstory. I just thought when the black characters weren't afforded that, I thought that was a real travesty and I, d- I didn't appreciate it at all.
0: <laughs> uh, we do have to wrap up. I'm just going to quickly yeah, I say know. it's, it's oh, really, really interesting hearing you yeah. say that because yeah. I, I actually went into the show tonight thinking I like this film a lot more than I did but talking it through, yeah, it, it has gone down a notch for me. And yeah. I think you've articulated some of what was troubling me at the back of my mind. Yeah, I, I think we're supposed to feel outraged and, and and angry, but but I think there are some voices really missing, missing. from this film. Absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. And yeah, and look, it's a story that should be told, and you know, credit to them for telling the story. Mm. It's a step in the right direction. I just think it was mishandled, and it would have been nice to maybe have some black people at the creating the source material rather than a lot of I don't know.
2: The, I don't know. We um, don't know. I, but we yeah, don't know. But you know. know, I wonder. <laughs> Oh, I'm, yes. Any final thoughts? No, we've we already. Final wrap thought, it up. that's fine. Wrap it up. Wrap yep. it up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on Planet Escape tonight, we have talked about Murder on the Orange Express, which is on wide release courtesy of 20th Century Fox. The 40th anniversary re-release of Close Encounters of the Third Kind will be screening at Cinema Nova and the Astor Theatre this coming Friday, 17th of November. I think there are other screenings after that, but that's the yeah. big one this Friday. And Detroit is on general release courtesy of, of Entertainment One Film. You've been listening to Thomas, Emma, and Lisa. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard.